Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Now, today is a particular delight for me because um, I hope you like the way that I do things. And if you don't, you have Noel Illumit to blame because he taught me everything I know. Um, Noel has been hosting events here at Skylight for the last 10 years. I'm gaining on him. I've been here eight. Um, and he is an accomplished playwright. He is in divinity school, so if you need someone to pray for you, he's a professional. Um, he has two novels that won uh, LA Times bestsellers and uh, LA Weekly Pick of the Week. Um, he's a winner of the Stonewall Book Award, winner of the Violet Quill Award, finalist for the Penn Book Award, one of the best books of the year from The Advocate. And he has been called profound, ambitious, multifaceted, remarkable, and a rising literary star. Let's clap for him. Thank you, Carrie. Wow, I should have. Thank you very much. Here's $20. Um, welcome, everybody, to this panel. Uh, the reason I wanted to do this panel is because, like you said, I've been hosting events here for, for 10 years, and one of the most common questions I'll hear you know, is from the audience, people ask, so how did you get your book published? How do you get a book published? You know, that's, that's something that's, that's ha that um, I hear all the time. And um, the last time we did a panel like this was 10 years ago actually 2002, and a lot has changed in 10 years. And so I thought it would be a good time for us to revisit uh, publishing. Um, before we begin, I want to introduce you to our distinguished panel. Uh, to my right is Daniel Smetanka. He has worked in various aspects of the publishing industry for close to 20 years as an executive editor at Ballantine Random House, Inc. He acquired and published award-winning debut books, including The Iced Harvest by Scott Phillips, The Speed of Light by Elizabeth Rosner, Down to a Soundless Sea by Thomas Steinbeck, and Among the Missing by Dan Chowan, a 2001 finalist for the National Book Award. He currently serves as editor-at-large for Counterpoint Soft Skull Press. To his right, Los Angeles Times book critic David L. Ulin authored The Myth of Solid Ground, Earthquakes, Predictions, and the Fault Line Between Ransom and Faith, and The Lost Art of Reading, Why Books Are So Important in a Distracted Time. And we have a, a number of his books um, actually available up here. Uh, next to 
David is B.J. Robbins. B.J. Robbins opened her Los Angeles-based literary agency in 1992 after a multifaceted career in book publishing that took her from publicity at Simon & Schuster to marketing director and later senior editor at Harcourt. Her agency represents non-genre fiction, both literary and commercial, and a wide range of non-fiction, from narrative to history and biography, pop culture, travel, adventure, sports, and health. And before I continue, yes, she will be giving out her email. Okay, so just so just to let you know that she <laughs> she will give out her email. And then right next to her is Dana Johnson, is the author of Elsewhere California and Break Any Woman Down. She's an associate professor of English at the University of Southern California, where she teaches literature and creative writing. And her book is is right up there. As a matter of fact, just to let you know, um, Dan actually edited that book, right, um, Elsewhere California. So. That's why I had them sitting far apart, so you know they can talk honestly about their experiences in this industry. All right. So um, before uh, we get into the questions, um, something I learned ten years ago when I did this is that people were pitching their book ideas right from the audience. You know, and I said that's wonderful, that's great, and yes, this that there's an opportunity for that too. Um, but uh, uh, we'll have a question and answer later on, and, and if we can sort of keep it um, general about about how to get a book published, that'd be great. Um, so let's begin with our first question. In your career, and I was looking at this table, and I think we have like maybe 100 years of experience <laughs> talking together. I know, everyone is. <laughs> you know? So we have lots of experience at this table. And in your career, how has the publishing industry changed for better or worse? And uh, we have two mics, and we can play around with them. <laughs> I'll start just because. Um, my short story collection came out in 2001, so that's 12 years ago. Um, and that was my first book, and um, Elsewhere California is my second, and so I had 12 years uh, uh, between books, and so. The industry has changed a lot in that there are, of course, fewer houses and less money, and it's much more difficult to get published. And I remember. Um, so thank you for coming. <laughs> yes. Dana. Um, Dana. Yes, I know. Just Dana. Okay. But. So, but that's how it's changed. I mean, that was one of the questions for better. Right, 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 right. Um, and um, and so that's how it's changed. There was a lot more money and and all of that. Um, but in terms, what I find interesting about the industry now is just all the different ways people are publishing, self-publishing, and all the digital stuff. And um, I think that that's actually a really good thing that people have to kind of take this into their own hands and try and figure out ways to get their work out in the world rather than relying on the same, like, I don't know, six or seven big houses or whatever it was at the time. So, I mean, I'll start with that. I'll jump in on it. I agree with that. Can you turn off? Yeah. Is this on? This is. Okay. The voice of God. Very deep. Um, I agree with that because I, I mean, it's obviously, the industry's obviously contracted considerably um, and 
there's less of everything, you know, less time, less money, less houses, less editors. Um, but I do think, in, in terms of you know what we used to think of traditionally as publishing, but there are a lot more venues. The walls have come down in some way. I think that's a mixed blessing because it means there's a lot more work out there, which is is or more there's more stuff out there. So it can be harder for readers um, to kind of figure out a way or make their way through it. Um, but I think it does require more kind of conscious engagement on the part of a writer, a more entrepreneurial sensibility, let's say. And in some ways, I think a more entrepreneurial sensibility on the part of a reader who, um, I think readers are less able, and this is not a bad thing at all, to rely on certain sort of pillars of culture to recommend what they should be looking at. Readers have to kind of make their own way through because there's so much uh, material out there. Um, so I think if you, this is a, well, I think if you don't want to make a living, it's a great time to be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Well, as somebody who's been in the publishing business for more than um, <clears throat> 30 years, um, it's been a long time. I mean, it's been an amazing transformation in some ways with the consolidations and everything else. And it's also in so many ways stayed exactly the same. Editors are looking for great books, fresh voices, something that um, will appeal to, you know, certain people, there's all different kinds of publishing, it's still out there. It's, you know, as David said, um, it, it's right now a really evolving um, business. Nobody even really knows what's going to be in the next 5, 10, 20, 20 years and how it's going to change. And I think as a result, there's so many different entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial ways that people are trying to get attention for their books, um, all these different websites that people join to share information. Those didn't exist 10 years ago. Unfortunately, you know, review sections in newspapers have really diminished, and that's um, hurt in a certain way. But now people are finding other ways to find out about books. Um, I think the numbers of books that are actually sold is greater than ever before. I don't think it's diminished in spite of um, all the noise that's out there. Um, people seem to be reading just as much as they did. Um, it's just the business has gotten bigger and, and changed in so many ways. So I don't know. I'm trying to be a Pollyanna here. I could be really gloom and doomish and tell you how much I hate the publishing industry, <laughs> but I won't do that. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> 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 oh, you want me to talk now? Um, well, as someone who's, you know, over 20 years has tried to stay gainfully employed uh, in this industry, um, in the past uh, there have been, you know, there was kind of the things you had to do to get published. Um, at some point you had to go to an island off the East Coast uh, called Manhattan. You had to have lunch with certain kind of people and have have their martinis and you know there was just an established path that, that, that most writers breaking into, into the industry had to go through. Um, I had to go to that island to find work. I'm an LA native and back in the 90s there was no work out here so you had to go there and do that. All of that has changed. Uh, the kind of you know the fishbowl of Manhattan has cracked. The technology has changed the game tremendously. So there is no one established path anymore towards getting your work out there and getting your work published. I think you see uh, just a myriad of different ways and venues and avenues that all of these new writers are doing uh, to, to get published. Um, however, you decide, 
however you define that. If it's you know the typical print books with the big houses, if it's ebook only, all of that. Um, so you know the the kind of inmates have the asylum, and there are some really good and exciting things about that, uh, and there are some really big uh, challenges that come with that too. When you have uh, such an old school industry that is completely decentralized, maybe not maybe not completely, mostly decentralized. Um, you know there are good and bad things to that. And so that's where all of this volatility comes from. That's where we see all of these um, great changes in our marketplace. Can, can you, I know we don't know what's going to happen, but it, if you were to guess, I mean, what, what direction are we going? Do you think ultimately, I was reading an article with Mar Margaret Atwood, and she said, you know, in Canada, different ways that people get published, but in America, it seems like there's only one. It was New York. And now, now from a bookstore point of view, we're seeing publishers from Seattle, we're seeing publishers from different parts of the country, you know, um, who want to do ev events with us. I mean, do you, do you think that um, something is changing, and where, and where are we going? Well, who knows? I mean, uh, there are so many different ways that this could go. Um, I do think you will continue to see this great disparity between what the big six houses in New York are doing um, as they continue to merge and get bigger and bigger and bigger to try and compete with some of these big online retailers. Um, and then you'll see this whole gap, and then you'll see a really thriving community somewhere beneath that, where the independent publishers, which is where I work at CounterPoint, uh, where some of the kind of smaller presses are, are kind of gaining better stuff and getting smarter um, and just having more avenues available to them as they seek to, to build their list. I mean, CounterPoint has been around for a while, has a really kind of very uh, good literary list. Uh, 2012 was our best year ever. This in the time of you know, great sadness from BJ and uh, a lot of uh, vol volatility. So, Jeremy, it, it, you know, if we're just as kind of crazed from the schizophrenia as some of you might be kind of reading about it. So, um, I think there's just going to be increased disparity, increased decentralization, um, and crazy fun times. Yeah. I tend to agree with that. I think also, you know, it, it's interesting. There's there are a lot of micro presses now, sort of small startups. They can be regional. They can be highly local. It can be a couple of writers getting together to put out their own work and put it out in a way that looks competitive in a bookstore. I mean, this isn't a new phenomenon. This started, you know, in the '80s with desktop publishing, um, and led to a kind of development of a bunch of really now would have now become kind of fairly established independents, independent publishers, um, or some of them have even run their course and are no longer around. Um, but I I think that's going to kind of increase. One of the things that interests me, a couple years ago I went to um, Book Expo, which is the book industry trade show, um, and it, exactly what Dan said was sort of played out on the convention floor. If you talk to the people who work for the big publishers, they were in complete despair. Um, and in some ways they should be, or should be, because their model is a failure, and you know, they're, they're really, they are consolidating, they're looking for blockbuster books, it's not an industry that really supports that, um, and they're squeezing out um, upcoming writers or you know sort of mid-list contracts become less and less available because the money's going to books that are supposedly going to really break the bank. But if you talk to people at sort of mid-level publishers on down, sort of mid-level independents, Grove Press, CounterPoint, um, Akashic Books, uh, $2 Radio, you just sort of name it. They were all pretty enthusiastic because they were dealing with less overhead. Um, they were people who were in publishing because they loved books um, in the first place. They weren't trying to make a vast killing necessarily, not that they weren't trying to make money. Um, 
and also more writers who would have not been available to them. You may be able to talk to this too. More writers who would not have been available to them were available to them because the big presses weren't publishing. There were writers who the big presses used to publish who they weren't publishing anymore. So I think it really depends on where you're situated. And so from a kind of grassroots or mid-level, mid-size um, position, I think there, again, it's tenuous and scary, but there's a lot of opportunity. If I was sitting in one of the big six, or they're soon going to be like the big three, right? They're, you know, if I was sitting in, you know, <clears throat> it's like it's like 1984. If I was sitting in Oceania or you know whatever the three countries in 1984 are, I would be quite uh, I would be quite concerned. Um, but from the outside of that, I think there's a lot of uh, it, it's pretty exciting. I would just say one thing too is um, oh it's, it's it's kind of it doesn't have anything. Okay. Hello. Oh wow. wow. Um, so the, the one thing I would add to that is that I did myself a disservice as a writer in that, because I can't predict the future what the book industry is going to do, but I didn't even try to pay attention um, because my thing was I, I just I can't think about that. It's going to drive me crazy, and all I can do is write, and I I can't hear all this other craziness because it's just going to bum me out. But it would have been helpful to simply pay more attention to the business, about, you know. But I think that's a very old-fashioned. That's what they taught us in MFAs. It's like that's somebody else's problem. You need to write your novels and your your short story collections. That's what you should pay attention to. And so that was sort of my model. And I think having come out with counterpoint, I learned the lesson of, I wasted a lot of time kind of following the old fashioned model of publishing, like, okay, we're gonna go to FSG and then we're gonna go to, I don't know, um, whoever. And those people were not interested in my book because it was too weird and wacky and obviously they weren't gonna make a ton of money. And so that was just, I, I should have been paying attention to kind of independent presses and smaller houses that did more literary stuff, more interesting stuff that, you know, didn't necessarily expect to make a ton of money off of my little book, but hopefully would make some money off my little book. So that's one thing I would say is it does help to pay attention to that. And um, so. I agree with everyone too. I think that um, something that wasn't mentioned is that the reliance on uh, on the author to help promote their book has really proliferated since I mean I started my career in publicity our job was authors were, were you know brought into the house we were publishing their book and it was my job to help make them media stars that was what I was supposed to do get them on TV get them on radio get the newspaper interviews now it's the other way around the publisher expects the author to already have some kind of a platform or some way to connect to large groups of people or even small groups of people and and it, it it's something that, you know, all the social networking and, and everything else has become really important for authors to do, which is totally against the old school of you just go and, and write your book and let everyone else worry about it. So it really becomes more of the author's responsibility, which is definitely new, and I think that's going to keep happening and get even more so in coming years. Um, in terms of five to ten years, I think that um, e-books will continue to grow. I do not think it will mean the death of printed books at all. I really don't. Maybe I'm a Pollyanna, but I, I just can't imagine a world without printed books. It just seems unfathomable to me. Um, However, I do think that certain formats of books will, they already are dying, if not already, almost dead already, which is the mass market paperback. Um, e-books have really replaced that mass market paperback, you know, the small for 
format paperbacks you find in drugstores and supermarkets. They're, they're, they're still published, um, but not in the way they used to be. That used to be the sort of fallback, especially for very commercial books. And now, really anything could be published as an e-book. And, um, and so they, they're probably going to go by the wayside. I think they're going to, e-books are going to cut into paperback sales as well, um, trade paperback sales. So can I just add something? To um, and I think they already are. Yeah. Um, when when ebooks kind of came onto the scene a couple of years ago, everyone thought, oh boy, this is going to be the death of the hardcover. Who's ever going to pay twenty five or twenty seven if we can uh, try to sell it for that? Um, when there's these you know twelve dollar ebooks, um, but strangely, it has kind of supported that format. Um, what it what we're seeing the ebooks really kind of eat into is is the eventual trade paperback. Um, if people want a cheap version of a hardcover, most likely they'll get an ebook. They're not waiting eight months or a year for their book club to wait and get the trade paperback. So I think very soon, and I think we're starting to see this already with some of the big houses, where um, if you do get a deal with them, they're going to say to you, you have a choice. Do you want a hardcover and an e-book at the same time um, and no trade paperback at all? Or do you want to try to trade paperback with ebook at the same time? I don't think, given the technology that's involved, all of these different formats will be able to exist. That the numbers just aren't supporting supporting that. I do need to say we do sell ebook readers, by the way, and you can download stuff from our website for ebook. And um, and I will say this, you know, I was talking to a woman with um, with a Kindle, and she said she actually, and I and I believe this. I think she actually said she reads more now because of Kindle. You know, because she's not carrying around books with her on the plan. That she's actually being able to read more. So we don't know what's going to happen. I think that you know it would be. I mean, we're. I mean, as a bookstore, certainly to keep up and stay alive. Right? We're we're at, we're we're adjusting. Like, well, what can we do with the ebook, and how how do we do that? And um, I guess uh, this leads to the question, which is, um, I'm sure people are here today wondering, so how, with what we're talking about, how do I get published today? I've got a book right now. I've got a book. How do I get it published? <laughs> I say we leave that to the professor. All right, all right, all right. I know when Good I day, have to sir. answer the question. Um, you have a book and you want it published, well, you join the crowd. <laughs> I don't mean to be flippant, but it's, um, yes I do. Um, anybody with a computer can write a book, I mean, or even by hand for that matter, and I've seen some odd submissions over the years. Um, the main thing is, first of all, to, to know what the market is for your book, not like the actual readers, but to have an idea, and then target your search according to who you believe the market is for your book. If you've written a very, you know, highly literary um, novel, it's not going to be for a big commercial house or an agent who represents big blockbuster kinds of authors. I mean, obviously the first thing you should probably do is to try to find a literary agent um, because we're the ones who can have the access to sell to any publisher, whether it's big or medium or, or small. And so it gives you the, you know, the biggest opportunity to get your book published by traditional means. Um, if that fails and you haven't been able to find someone to represent you, you can just simply upload it um, onto any various sites and have it available to um, probably will will be a minuscule reading public, but it'll still be out there. Um, so it, how to get a book published 
hasn't changed, really. I mean, it's the same thing. It has to be really an amazing piece of writing. It has to be the very best book you can possibly write. You've had everybody you know read it, and maybe people you don't know to, to get actual opinions. Um, and and you have to then have a confidence and belief in your book and send it out into the world to the right people who will then see it to the next step to get it published. I don't know what other, it's a sort of a broad question, but. Can I, I want to add something to that too. I just got done saying don't be old fashioned, but there is something old fashioned about being publishing that actually is helpful, which is book contests, and there's a million of them, or hundreds at least, I shouldn't say millions, but there's a lot, and that was how I first got published. I didn't have an agent, I didn't know what I was doing. I had my thesis, which was a short story collection, and I entered a bunch of contests, and the one that I won was the Flannery O'Connor, so that was my first book, and then I got an agent, and then uh, Random House picked up the paperback because University of Georgia Press did the hardcover. Anyway, if I had been sitting around waiting for an agent first or whatever, I don't, I mean, I just think that wouldn't have been helpful. So I just entered a bunch of contests with my last $30 or whatever I had in grad school. <laughs> I remember I always tell this sad hard luck story, but I had these amazing red suede dance go clogs that I sold because I needed $35 for the Flannery. Wow. And so I sold those clogs and I won the Flannery. So all that to say, you know, places like Poets and Writers and those kind of places, they always list all the contests every year. And people win. Somebody's got to win. I totally did not think I would win. And I got a, a phone call. So that's the old, one of the old-fashioned ways of doing it. Yeah, if I'm going to add to that. You yeah, yeah. Give your $35 back? Barely. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, that, what, what Dana's talking about is actually coming, is gathering what I call gathering ammunition. It's what I do when I take on a book and I'm going out to publishers with it. I try to gather as much ammunition as I can to, to get them, first of all, interested in wanting to read it and then in wanting to publish it. And that could be, I mean, obviously, if someone won the Flannery O'Connor contest, that's a big piece of ammunition. I would, I would be thrilled if somebody came to me and said they won such a prestigious contest. Um, they're not all as prestigious as that. I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, you have to, it's buyer beware like everything else in this business. You have to make sure that the contest is legitimate and it's not just people collecting, you know, entrance fees. Um, they have to really have, have some, you know, some worth to them. Because um, I see people have said, I've won the so-and-so contest, I've never heard of it, and it doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. But the fact that you've entered anything and won it probably is, is a good thing. Um, it's to maybe you, you, you know, it's to network with other writers and try to, you know, maybe get someone to give you an endorsement before your book's even published when it's still in manuscript form. I know that I've sold books, I mean, the, the, the book has to hold up on its own, the manuscript. But if I go into um, a publisher with a quote from a very well-known author, it will definitely spark their interest and make them feel, okay, it's a sort of a validation. Um, those are all the different kinds of things that you can do before you go out with the book. But the main thing is, is just to, is to have the, the work there. I mean, probably, Dana, if you had sent your book to agents, you would have gotten somebody. <laughs> well, the funny thing was, I'd sent all those stories out uh, singly, just for literary journals, and they all just kept getting rejected, rejected. But as a book, they suddenly made sense, but on their own, it was like, nobody cares, so that's uh, it's weird, I don't know. Well, that's an example of just don't give up. Um, another way, another bit of ammunition is to get 
works published in literary journals. I do find that when I read um, query letters and I look at the bio, I, I, you know, when I see that someone's been published in some good literary journals, that definitely increases my interest in reading what they have. So and I do remember that I got published in literary journals after I won the Flannery, so suddenly they wanted to be yeah. the first to publish. Yeah. Um, but then people who read the stories in like the Missouri Review or whatever it was started asking me, did I have an agent? Right. But I already had an agent because I'd won the Flannery. So it was a weird, <laughs> you know, but that, all that to say is that the literary journals are very helpful too if you can start placing a story here. And often agents look for use literary journals, look at literary journals looking for writers that they can approach. I mean, I, I've been approached by agents f from stories that appeared. I have friends who got agents that way. Um, so that, in, in terms of just exposure, that's another part of it. I would say the only, you know, the thing that I would think about is just think in terms of a career, not in terms of a book. Um, you know, and what I mean by that is you want to be on for the long haul. You don't want to just, I mean, it's, it'd be, it's great if you have a big splash with a book, but you know, I was always interested in being a writer, not necessarily in writing a book, but in sort of having a, a living a literary life. Um, so I thought once and still do sort of short term in terms of individual projects, but also long term in terms of sort of, you know, what's the what's the big project I'm working on? And that does help in a certain way with discouragement because I figure that's part of it. It's all part of an uh, of an ongoing process. And all of these things add up or they build. You publish a story one place, maybe nobody notices it. Maybe somebody notices it. Maybe three years from now, somebody notices it and, you know, it comes back to you. The idea is just to sort of be, you know, keep yourself in play, be in the game, and don't um, don't be discouraged by individual setbacks because hopefully you're there, you're, you're trying to be there for a long time. Um, I agree uh, with all of that. Um, but, but also, um, think of it in terms of, uh, I mean, there, there's so much traffic out there for, for all of us. You know, there's always more people who want to be published than people who work on the other side of the fence who can, you know, help them and, and publish them. Um, and, and there's so much traffic that you, you never know what's going to be the kind of thing that tips it your way. Um, so I always think, especially for, for, for fiction writers, um, but for nonfiction too, this kind of idea of micro-targeting, um, all you need is one yes. So for Dana, it was the Flannery which is, uh, she's being modest, one of the most prestigious awards in the country. Um, but, you know, uh, time and time again, you hear all of these stories from, you know, I've got 50 rejections for my novel, but then I found the one agent who really loved it. Um, and I could tell you many stories from the editorial desk where through a meeting, through something, yes, we like it and we are going to move ahead with it. So, um, and that's tough when you're, you know, aspiring to do something and there's a lot of traffic and there's a lot of people around you who are trying to do the same thing. But, but find the one advocate. And it might take a while, but find the one person who is your yes and then the rest can hopefully sort itself out. What, what are your thoughts on self-publishing? What are your thoughts on people just saying, this takes too long or you know, screw it, I'm just going to do it. What, you know. Can I jump in first? Yeah, just because ahead. Um, this question comes up so many times, and I was talking at a at a uh, 
MFA program five or six years ago, and and someone had asked what's coming, you know, what's the future, and I said, watch. I go, we're going to be overrun with self-published books, and I was actually scolded by the head of the program, who, someone you know, Damon, um, who said, how don't talk about self-published in this program. What are you talking about? Um, and here we are today. Um, now, everyone likes to talk about self-publishing because it seems to be so easy. You don't have to deal with all of those crazy people. You don't have to deal with all the rejection of agents, yada, yada, yada. And look at all of these people who've had so much success. But let's, before we begin our discussion, let's put some real numbers on the table. Uh, and these come from L.L. Bowker, who, who is the company that hands out the ISBN numbers. So it's fairly legitimate. Um, the average amount earned by self-published authors last year was $10,000. Half of them made less than $500. Um, people who actually paid for help with editorial found to make 13% more than the average. And someone who paid for an actual cover design from a professional upped their earnings by another 34%. So when you place kind of, you know, the real working numbers, boots on the ground, we hear about Fifty Shades of Grey, we hear about that other creepy little science fiction girl who are selling, you know, three, <laughs> three billion e-books from her basement and you know her assistant is her cat, and and, all the, and and we think, okay, that's so easy, upload it. But on, on the kind of real working, you know, side of things, um, you know, if we're looking at around 250,000 books traditionally published each year, which is about what we're looking at, the self-publishing technology side of things is bringing an additional 250,000 original books published a year, and that's by only those who went ahead and got an ISBN number. There might be more. Um, so you see how, how very quickly the stage gets continually crowded and crowded and crowded. Um, and, and a lot of these people who go upload to a major online retailer or another place, um, the only way they can get attention is by reducing the price. So now we have a $5.99 ebook or a $3.99 or a $0.99 cent ebook. Think about what that does to the value of intellectual property for every writer out there today. So I'm not kind of advocating one way or not. I'm not disparaging one way or another. But I think any conversation about this, getting those numbers out front uh, is always kind of an interesting thing. No, it, it's exactly true. For the, you know, the, the number of successes among self-published authors is really minuscule compared to the numbers of books that are out there. I mean, I think it's all great and good for anybody to have the ability to self-publish. Um, I mean, it's very democratic. They don't have to go through any of the gatekeepers. Um, however, there's a reason there are gatekeepers. There's a reason that there are editors and people who, you know, decide what they want to publish. Um, in some places, you could call it taste. Um, I don't need to be. But I mean, you know, the truth, I get a ton. I know. You get it. Well, I'm not an editor. Um, you get a ton, I get a ton of self-published books that come into, you know, my office and people wanting to then um, have me take it on and sell it to, to, to a traditional publisher. And the thing is, I look at these books and they just look awful. They're just, they're, the, the artwork is terrible. The interior design is is not good. They're They're not edited. They're you know, many of them are practically unreadable. Um, but yes, they, you know, have a published book and, and that's great. Um, 
but it's not the same business. I mean, there was recently the guy who's the head of Smashwords. It's a company that where you can upload your your um, file for free and have your book published as part of his, you know, this vast catalog of books. There's no filter whatsoever. He doesn't care what you upload. In fact, there's tons of like triple X super porn stuff on there. Just a I can see people downloading it now. No. Um, What's that you are? Right. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and then he was being interviewed, I guess, alongside or at this, not the same time, but they were back-to-back -back interviews with Michael Peach, who's the, um, the head of uh, Little Brown, actually Hachette, which includes both Little Brown and Grand Central Publishing, a really brilliant guy, publisher, um, who's also been an editor of some like amazing books. Um, David Foster Wallace is one of his authors, Janet Fitch. Um, I mean, the, the, the list goes on and on. And I saw this article about the fact that there are these two interviews with these two folks and how they conflicted. And I thought they're, they're completely different businesses. Mark Cogart Smashwords is making money from having anybody upload their book. For every book that's sold on Smashwords, he gets some little piece of it. It's, it's not a lot, but his business is a volume business. He doesn't care what goes up on there. There's no filter. I mean, I looked at the catalog and I, and I laughed and I said, this is, he's publishing my slush pile. I mean, this is like anybody can just put up anything, whereas Little Brown, you know, has a very discerning editorial eye. They pick books that they think are the best writers out there, you know, for, you know, whatever, whether you agree with them or not, it's a decision based on a group of people who are pretty intelligent and have been in publishing and worked with writers for many years. And so there's a huge difference that you just can't even compare them. So I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the camp of the, you know, of the little browns of the world. Those are the things that I want to represent. I want to represent wonderful writing, you know, or great ideas or something that's, you know, that's of value. And just having something to me that's just, you know, written doesn't necessarily mean it should be published, certainly not by traditional means. So by all means, yes, I think it's great that there is that ability, but um, I still, I guess I'm a snob, what can I say? Um, I want to talk about, I guess, getting our words out there. I was at the Asian American Writers Conference um, not too long ago, and, and one speaker said, this is a golden age of writing. We have more writers now than we've ever had, with blogging, the internet, everything. We have more writers than we, 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 we've ever had. They, they may not necessarily be the best, you know. Um, and uh, I was curious to know what you think about uh, the internet. I wanted to show you this. Um, this is a book. Um, I hope you're not offended by the title. It's called Fuck Yeah Menswear. <laughs> okay, and it's put out by Touchstone. We had, and it sold really well. We had another book called um, T Rex is Trying, put out by I think it was put out by Penguin, and they're all discovered through Tumblr. Um, now these are obviously, if you want, if you're a highly visual person, a coffee table book. This, this is the kind of book. It's more of a style guide and things. But I was curious to know how you think the internet is changing, and 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 how um, writers being visit um, knows that way. I mean, that Julia Julia book came about because of a woman's blog, you know. So, how do you think the internet is changing our world, or technology is changing publishing? So I guess there are less books coming out. There are less books evolving now from blogs because blogs are over, basically although there's still plenty of blogs out there. But um, I mean, I'm of two minds on this, or six minds on this. Um, depends. Uh, from a writer's point of view, I think that the internet is both a great sort of um, 
set of possibilities and also a kind of conundrum to wrestle with because it constantly needs to be fed. Um, if you're going to have some kind of digital presence, you need you can't just sort of post once a week or you know every couple you know, a couple times a month. You've got to really tend it. And I you know this is where I become old fashioned. I you know as a writer you know in terms of my own writing in terms of students I work with, I would rather have writers devote themselves to their actual writing than sort of scour around looking for blog posts or things that they can put on Twitter that'll keep them part of some kind of transient conversation that's over in you know 35 seconds. I think that we as a literary culture, how would I put it? Again, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think one of the most interesting and exciting things about the literary internet at the moment is that there is this quality of conversation. Um, I, you don't, you know, if you're publishing about books, you don't feel like you're publishing into a vacuum anymore um, or waiting for readers to get back in touch with you. You can put up a piece. People will respond to it. Sometimes there'll be pieces that respond to other pieces. I remain uncertain whether anyone outside of the fishbowl is reading all those pieces about other people's pieces, and, I, um, and that's a source for concern as well. But I do think think that there's a way to kind of participate in a collective dialogue or, or conversation um, and an actual, you know, where the, so that the literary internet actually becomes not just a virtual community, but a kind of actual community in terms of its dynamic. That's really interesting and exciting to me. I do think that the emphasis on the conversation, though, and this notion that there is a quick conversation going on and we all have to weigh in and respond to everything right now because otherwise the conversation will move past us, and if we stop for five minutes to actually think about what we want to say, you know, we'll be six 16 tweets behind and we'll have to catch up. I mean, seriously, I think that's part of the, there is a kind of, you know, franticness about digital culture that I think is antithetical to writing as a way of life because writing, at least for me, writing is the antithesis of franticness, except if you count the franticness about not writing, um, right? And for writing is sitting in a room, banging your head against the fucking table all day long, <laughs> trying to get sentences out. And that's not, for me at least, what, um, what, what sort of the instant nature of digital conversation does. So I think it's, they're two sort of irresolvable things and I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> David, you're scaring them. Writing, <laughs> writing isn't hard. You sit down, you write a book, and then it's done, then you write another book, it's fine. <laughs> right. what, did, what did Philip Roth say to that waiter? <laughs> and also on the internet? The importance of it? I'm, I'm with David on the um, I can't do blog. I, I, I don't have time. Where do these people find the time to do this stuff? It's like I'm teaching, and when I'm not teaching, I'm writing. And then, like, to do the internet stuff just drives. I can't. I mean, it took all my psychic energy to get a website. That was like the biggest deal ever. <laughs> that I have a website was huge. That is still like out of date, right? The last posting was like from four months ago or whatever it is. So I just feel like, um, again, I'm in it for the long haul. And so I've only got two books. I don't know, you know, I'm trying for a third and a fourth and just the slow burn. And uh, so blogs and tweets and all of that stuff, even Facebook, can't do it. Can't do any of that. I just, I can my, my energy goes to the writing. Um, on the other side of the coin, I, 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 um, 
I work communications for a nonprofit, so my, my whole world, when I get to, to when I get to the office, I first thing I'm on, I'm on Facebook and Twitter all the time. I mean, I am like, that is like, I'm Facebooking, I'm tweeting, you know, um, I gotta get an Instagram, I gotta, you know, and, and it's this crazy, wild world, and you're absolutely right, because what happens if I don't, if I don't chime in on what they're saying, all of a sudden the world will pass me by, you know, and I don't think, you know, that, um, that uh, that's really, really writing. I mean, yeah, I have an opinion, you know, we all want to say something, you know, but is that really, really writing, you know? Um, I, I, I don't think this uh, conversation about internet though is over. I think that, uh, you know, do you think that, um, uh, do you think that um, you need to have a website these days? And people are saying you need to have a web presence? I mean, I have a friend um, and who you know too is like, I barely check my website. I mean, I, it's up there, you know, it's there. <laughs> and he doesn't even know if he gets letters anymore, you know, because it's just, you know, we, we know, it's like we know like there's this business model that Rod is supposed to have. We're supposed to have a website, so we have a website and it just sits there, right? <laughs> You know, so um, what what do we do next? I mean, what do we do now? How do we start careers, maintain careers as writers? It's starting to feel to me like the website thing is over. Although, if you don't have one, I know. But if you don't have one, but then you, but I tell all my clients, where you know, I have one client who who's had three very successful books, is about to have his fourth come out, and he still doesn't have a website, and it just it's so irritating, and um, it's like please, because it's good. To, you, you sort of want to have it, not that you'll necessarily use it all that often, um, or update it, or you know, but but especially when your book is coming out. I think it's a useful tool. To me, all the internet stuff, I mean, I go in my office and, and I st start like reading all these, you know, online newsletter publishers lunch and then I'm reading this and that. It's just a distraction. Um, I mean, all of it. I don't tweet. I just figure that'll be the end of me if I start tweeting. No, I mean, I, I just had, I sort of have the life of a writer in a certain way because I'm sitting, you know, alone. I have a part-time assistant, but uh, I'm in, alone in a room. A lot of times I'm reading or I'm writing correspondence or I'm, you know, I'm in my head. Um, I'm on the phone much less often than I used to be. I used to be on the phone all day long and now I'm just, you know, writing emails. I, I was thinking about this the other day that we all write a lot more now than we did 10 years ago or 15 years ago when most communication was on the telephone. And most people now don't talk on the phone at all. It's only the most really important or, you know, conversations. Um, that happen on the phone, and the rest of everything is just written. So maybe that's a good thing that we've all had to like bone up our writing skills a little bit more, especially for the younger generation. As you know, although their writing skills are still pretty funky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's some uh, career advice? What are some career advices you may have some, for some writers earlier in their career? And I'm looking at, at Dana and David because I know you work and you teach um, in MFA programs. And what do you say what do you, you know, to people? Um, oh. my, actually, we're, we're actually recording this, so I want to make sure that everything is, every wonderful word is. I, I'm a, I, I have debates with some people often about whether or not MFAs are relevant or the way to go anymore and because, you know, so many people want to get an MFA and so many people get, go through these programs and not everyone's going to get published, obviously. So the question is, do we recommend the MFA or do we not? And I always do simply because... Um, for me, it was something, first of all, the field uh, writing is so professionalized. Um, it's a way to understand the writing life. It's, um, I, was, I was educated about books and writers that I never would have heard of if I had just tried to do it on my own. 
Um, I just think it's very useful. And so for serious writers, I do recommend the, the MFA. Um, I don't know, you know, what the future holds for these writers, but I think if I had kind of just sat around on my own trying to write my stories, I wouldn't have known where to go, how to send them. I wouldn't have known anything about it because um, that's not my world. Um, so I do. That's one of the things I do recommend my students. But when they're young, I say, I mean, I went and got my MFA when I was almost 30. So I waited a long, not, I don't know, is that a long time? I guess it's a long time. Um, I had a, I was a copy editor f before I went to grad school, went to Indiana. So I really, really, really wanted it. It wasn't like, oh, I graduated at 18 and I kind of sort of want to be a writer, so let me just apply to some programs. I, I mean, it was a whole decade, so. If you're serious, highly recommended. I I agree. I don't have an MFA, um, and I was skeptical about MFA program. I'm generally skeptical about everything, so I was skeptical about MFA programs in addition to everything else. But what I found, I've been teaching in them pretty steadily for a long time, 12, 15 years, and what I think is really valuable is community. You know, the most valuable. Like, can we teach you to write? No. Can we teach you to become a better writer? Absolutely. Can we, you know, can you get exposed to a ton of stuff? Yes. It does it, is it all on you? Absolutely. But that's the writer's life too. If you're serious, it's all, it's all on you either way. Nobody's waiting, right? The world does not need any more books. So um, nobody's waiting for anybody to deliver. If nobody in this room ever typed another word on a computer screen or wrote in a notebook again, the world would not care. So I think that what an MFA program does is to sort of make people or kind of heighten the focus so the serious people get, get more serious. They're paying money, presumably. I mean, in some cases, some people are getting stipends, but some people are not. So you're spending money to basically be in a rarefied situation, whether low residency or traditional, for a couple of years, where you're talking about art and literature with people who really care about art and literature. You're getting exposed to a ton of different books. You're building a peer group. Um, I think part of the benefit of that peer group in every MFA program I've ever taught in um, magazines, small presses, etc., have evolved um, just from critical the critical mass of getting a bunch of creative people together um, in a in a in a space and get them talking and trading ideas and things happen. I think that that's a huge part of it. I think the support network is huge because writing is lonely and um, full of despair. And I mean, I do completely agree with Philip Roth about this. Actually, if there's any possible way for you not to want to write. Don't write. What Roth was telling that waiter, which I thought the waiter, who turned out to be a writer, not a waiter, um, because of because of his response to Roth, what Roth knew when he said, you know, give it up now, was that if the kid was really a writer, he was going to say, no way. And so I think that's what an, an MFA, MFA programs can make people really get serious. The wheat gets separated from the chaff, and I think that that's important. We can't guarantee people publication. Um, you know, I talk to students about. Um, you know, if there's a piece that I think is ready to go, I'll certainly sort of let them know that, but I also let them know that from where I'm sitting as their teacher, uh, the publication is secondary to me. I'm there to work on the art. The other thing I'll say from the point of view of, a, of an instructor, but I think it's true for a student, is that the MFA program and particularly the workshop is the only place left for me in the universe where I can use the word art without putting ironic quotation marks around it. And so that's a beautiful, beautiful thing to actually get to sit and talk about literature 
and art um, in a non-ironic setting on a regular basis is one of the great privileges of, of being alive, I think. It's wonderful. I, I did not get an MFA. I'm getting an MDiv right now. I, I got a BFA and I thought one fine arts degree was good enough. Yeah. Never again. That's what I said to myself. Okay, so I'd like to open this up to the audience if there are any questions that we may have for our panel. Um, I have a question about nonfiction, and it's a dreaded two-parter. Um, so my question is, I have a book proposal, and I've um, spent a little bit of time shopping it around, not a lot lately, and you know, basically been told that you pretty much have to be Lena Dunham to get a nonfiction book published right now. So my question is, in the nonfiction arena, sort of pop, you know, nonfiction, is that the way to go? Do you, you put together a proposal, you know, short of the self-publishing stuff? You put together a proposal and you go out there and try to shop it around. That's the first part of the question. And then the second part is, how do you find an agent? I've made a little bit of an effort to do that and sort of come up against walls. So how does one go about doing that? Question about book uh, proposals and non the non agents. Well, no, with nonfiction, definitely the proposal is the way to go. I mean, the beauty of selling nonfiction is that you don't have to finish the entire manuscript in order to sell it. Which is, you know, great. Yes. However, that proposal has to be really, really good. And um, one of the main things that publishers are looking for in a proposal is the author's platform. Um, what are their credentials? Why are they the right person to, to write this book? How are they going to reach the market for this book? There's, those are all the questions. Who's the audience for it? How is the author going to reach them? Those are all the, th the questions that are asked. You can write a great proposal, but if you don't have a platform, <clears throat> excuse me, it's going to be very difficult to sell it. Um, and then what was the second part of your question? Oh, how to find an agent. <clears throat> well. Um, First of all, that you should do your homework. You, should, you said you did a little bit of work to find an agent, and that's not good enough. What you need to do is find out. There, there. I don't know how many agents there are. Hundreds of us. There are different uh, websites and different books, actual published books that list literary agents. You need to go through them and find out which agents handle the subject that you're trying to sell. Can you can you point me in a direction? <laughs> um, now or later, what, what, you know, to, to sure. I mean, there uh, you know there there's so many different sites. I mean, you just use Google. You can look in books that are similar um, and literary find in the acknowledgments. Yeah, literarymarketplace.com. It was very <laughs> difficult to discern. A lot of them don't. Um, some of them have. Well, you know. It's not that difficult to discern. If you look at um, at the acknowledgments pages in, in books, you can find out who the agents are. Um, there's an organization called AAR. They have an online component. I forget it's AAR underscore online dot com or dot org or something like that. You can just Google AA. Uh, it's the Association of Authors Representatives. Um, and on their website, I believe for free, that's you know complete access. You can find out the list of the um, participating agents in the organization and what kinds of books they represent. There's um, Writers Guild, Writers Digest has a book that lists literary agents with some description about what kinds of books they want to represent. And that's what you need to do. You need to put together a list of the most appropriate agents. Once you have done that, your next goal is to write a really really strong letter that can be in the form of an email that 
tells the agent right up front why you are sending your project to them. I think that's really important. I mean, I can't tell you, I, every day I get at least 10 or 20 emails from someone and it's, you know, sometimes there's a whole like laundry list of every agent in the book included in the to line, which I immediately delete. Sometimes they, they don't even say anything, they just launch into a very long and incredibly boring description of their book. Um, there's so many ways to do it wrong, it's really not that hard to do it right. Um, and because all of us want to feel that somebody has sent us their work because they know who we are and what kinds of books we represent. So that is up to you to gather that information, but by whatever means you can. And it's not, it used to be more difficult to find and now it, it really isn't at all. You can Google individual agents' names and find, get their bios. A lot of them have websites. I actually don't have a website. It's been like this joke for myself for many years. I do have a web page, so I do have a web presence. I'm not, you know, that much of a Luddite. But um, I just actually don't really want people to find me. Isn't that terrible? I get all these calls from marketing companies. I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to be listed. I don't want to, I don't, um, I get enough. But that that's your job as the author is to find out, you know, it, it, it's all about thinking it through and doing your homework. And the more you learn about the publishing business and about literary agents and who they are, the easier it'll be. It will seem less daunting. And I think, and I always say this with with, with writers, you know, find a literary community. I think you talked about that, David. Is that, is that once you start like hanging around literary people, like a bookstore, for example. I mean, one thing that always bugs me is someone says, "Oh, I want to do an event at your store." And they've never been here before, right? <laughs> you know, they don't know. They don't know what we do. They know nothing about about us. And just, they just, you know, like start building a name for yourself, even if you don't have a book. You know, that, let people know that you, you write, and that's that's who you are. And once you actually start talking to people about agents, people say, "Oh, yeah, there's a there's a so and so agent who's really really great. There's that that agent's really really great." So I think if you find a community. You know, um, I know there's a point, I know writers sort of get stuck in their own little room. There's a point you have to get out, get out of that room, you know, get out of the room and start living in the world, you know, so. Any other question? Um, I actually had a great uh, book idea I wanted to pitch. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually had a pretty general question I was hoping all of you might, or some of you might have some insight on, which is given the number of large pu uh, publishers as well as the smaller ones that are uh, jumping up, do you think agents are going to be like increasingly more important presence so they can kind of say like this would be more appropriate for a smaller publisher or I know who this might be better for or something like that? As a lone publisher, here, I'll give you a break. I mean, I never really understood what agents were good for. <clears throat> you buy them lunch, buy them drinks, nothing ever comes of it. Um, just kidding. I'm kidding. He's totally kidding. I'm here today on the backs of many good agents. Um, listen, uh, for all of you new writers, there is no one more important than an agent. You will, you know, uh, that's, that's the entryway, that's the path. The big houses, a lot of the independent houses, kind of our size, uh, you know, there, there, some of the small presses still take what we call unsolicited uh, submissions, which is where, you know, there's directions on your website, on their website, so you can just send a manuscript to $2 radio and maybe they'll read it, you know. But for, for, for Counterpoint, the smaller houses and especially the big houses, you can't do that anymore. You need an agent to get these people to read and consider your stuff for publication. So an agent has always been extremely, extremely important in that regard. Um, and now that we're in this kind of 
decentralized mess where you know there are no curators anymore the curation becomes more important so I think that a lot of the publishers rely more and more on the agents to help filter just this incredible amount of, of, of material um, so I think they have been important and will continue to do so but I will also say that the you know the onus is a lot more on the writer um, than it ever has been and so once we get them used to that workload there's no way that we're gonna let them give that up Dana who just created a website um, <laughs> you know that's just the wave of the future and that's going to that's not gonna go away um, there's no successful writer in America today who isn't also a successful reader so if you have a first novel that you're trying to sell and if I ask you what are the five biggest first novels published last year and you can't answer that question you're not ready to enter the marketplace you need to have a really good idea of what it is you're writing and where you're gonna fit on these bookshelves all around us you know are you gonna be farewell Fred voodoo <laughs> or you're gonna be, ooh, sex and world peace that's where I want to be that's what I'm writing so you know and, and and that whole awareness of where you're gonna fit into this marketplace that leads you on the path towards the agents who have successfully sold that kind of material and a successful agent that leads you successfully to a publisher who can do something with it. And then I'll just jump in and say I think think again in terms of the long vision, right? You don't want, hopefully, you don't want an agent just to represent a book. You're looking actually to have a relationship in a certain way, right? You're looking to become, it's a partnership. A, a successful agent-writer relationship, I think, is a partnership that goes on, f hopefully, potentially for years, for decades, right? Um, that involves kind of the construction of a career, the planning of a career, um, the, you know, sort of discussion of work. Agents are much more hands-on now, I think, as editors have become less hands-on hands-on in terms of sort of pre-editing, looking at manuscripts, going over them with writers, certainly in terms of proposals. Um, the last book proposal I wrote, my agent made me take it through, I don't know, three or four drafts before we sent it to <coughs> send it out. So um, I think that's really important. But also that sense of a kind of um, someone who you can trust and someone who you uh, want to work with over, over a period of time. I think, that, I mean, I this echoes what I was saying before, but I think the, the, the sort of the greatest mistake you can make is thinking in terms of one quick hit. Um, you know, it, it's it's really in terms of sort of what are the relationships you're going to build that are going to support um, a career and a long-term engagement in writing and reading, and that that's something I would think about too. I, I, I'm just to give some idea. I, I think it took me about two years to secure an agent, and and, it, and you know, and it's just constantly just sending a query letter. And I say, you know. Um, and two years is good, actually. <laughs> I want to say that because some people have been looking for years, and I, I went alphabetically A to Z, you know, sending out those query letters, and Al Zuckerman finally called me. So it just, you know, you just never really know. So really, yeah, it was Z. I mean, I said, yeah, he was the very, he was the last on the list. Let me tell you. So, and and I think you're absolutely right to really do your research. Don't send, you know, don't send your cookbook to a literary agent who doesn't do cookbooks, you know. I think that's always a frustrating. So I hear agents talk about that all the time. They they obviously don't know who I am. You know, I'm not a romance, you know, agent. Why are they sending me their, their romance novels, you know? So to, to be wise about things like that. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah. Is there something you don't look for in a query letter, something that's immediately off-putting? And then <laughs> having, been, having been rejected, is there any reason not to, to rewrite your proposal, rewrite your summary and send it back out? Or is that just going to piss you off? Um... Well, the truth is, if I if I don't if it's if the query letter isn't any good, I'm really not going to get to the material. Um, I mean, the obvious things. Um, 
you know, having misspellings. Sometimes people have spelled, like I've gotten it in the subject heading of the email, it says query, Q-U-E-A-R-Y. I mean, it's like, oh, please. Um, I, you know, I get very sort of, you know, crotchety about these sorts of things. I, if somebody says I've written a fiction novel, I'm done. I'm just done. <laughs> I'm done. I, and, and they could be the greatest, you know, writer in the history of the world, but I'm not going to take them on. I think if you, if you don't get any success from your approach and you haven't gotten people to um, respond and say, I'd like to see more of this or I really like this, then scrap it. Rewrite it. Figure out a different way. Um, in fact, I just read a novel. It was sent to me by a client of mine. It's her cousin. And she said, I just read my cousin's novel. I think it's really good. And I asked, I said, well, sure, I'll take a look at it. And I was surprised because it's the kind of book I generally don't like. But I actually quite liked it and thought it was good. And I, I wrote to the writer and I said, um, did you have a query letter? Because he, I guess, tried to send it out a couple of times a few years ago. And he sent me his query letter. And I thought, oh my god, if I had gotten this query letter, I never would have asked to see this book. It was like a snooze fest. It just was like talking about that it was, you know, the, the plot of the of the novel it went on and on and on and you know if you haven't read something the last thing you want to read is the plot of something you haven't read it's just boring what you want to do the whole job of a query letter is to entice the reader to make them want to read it I always think the description should be way more thematic and global rather than particular um, I see that mistake all the time where people give way too much description in their in their cover letter I want to know more about I want to know about the writer and 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 what they've either where they've been published or if they if you do something unusual or or something that will say oh this is this is really interesting I haven't seen anything like this before um, I think you you want to stand out by having done your research and your homework in advance and and have a reason for sending to that particular agent I mean you know um, flattery will sort of get you everywhere initially if you say I, you know, I'm a big fan of and list, you know, some of my clients or one even, I'll say, oh, okay, you know, maybe that person actually read that book. Well, what made me laugh a number of years ago, I got a query letter from somebody who had mentioned a book that hadn't yet been published. And I know they had read about it on Publisher's Lunch. They actually report on deals that are made, so they must have seen that I had made this deal. And they, you know, said, oh, and I love that novel by so and so. I'm like, wait a minute, it hasn't even been published. I knew they were lying, and then I went, no, I don't want you. Um, I mean, it's a lot easier to say no than it is to say yes. But I really, I, I go in every morning and, and open up my email, and I would love to, to um, ask to see more of something. I'm not looking to say no. I'm not looking to just delete, you know, like Grinch-like all my emails. I'm hoping to discover something really wonderful. I think all literary agents really feel the same way. Well, maybe not all of them, but... Um, but most of us do. I mean, that, that's what makes the job great, is, is finding something fantastic and fabulous. I, do, I don't know if you do this, but I know that when I was going through the process, there were actually two agents who wrote me back suggesting revisions, um, which I thought was very kind of them. So I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing if you get rejection, if they go through the, uh, you know, uh, to suggest you know, revisions. And, and, and two of them, I mean, they were like you know, pretty high. I mean, like one was Alison Walker's agent and someone else's agent, and they gave the same note. You know, I thought, well, the same note, maybe I should listen to this note. You know? <laughs> you know? So in that way, the whole looking for agent thing actually became a very positive experience for me. I mean, I know the rejection's hard. I know it, it's really hard, but, you know, 
know, in that way, it yeah. became a really good thing. Well, you thing can't take me. it personally. I mean, the whole thing is, is that we all have our own subjective taste. So because you've sent something to us and we turn it down, doesn't mean it's not good. It just, like a lot of times my response is, it's not, it's not right for me. And I don't mean that it's bad. I mean, it's not right for me. It doesn't, you know, spark my interest in the way that it should, um, but it might spark someone else's. And so you, if you really believe in what you've written and you've got another positive feedback on it, you have to keep going. Like Noelle said, you know, go, go all the way to Z. And, and maybe you'll, you know, that, that will be, uh, all you need is one person to say yes. As someone said, you said. Uh, one last question over here, yeah. Just, uh, two quick questions, um, mainly about the business of publishing. Um, the marketing costs that go into a book, are those fronted by the publisher and then taken out of sales of the book? And the other question is, when you sign a publishing deal, are you giving up the copyright of the book on a perpetual basis to the publisher? <laughs> the copyright is always in the author's name with a publisher, always, always. No, we should ever, 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 ever give up their copyright to anybody. Um, the marketing costs are borne by the publisher. That's, you know, that, that's part of the deal. Um, it should be. Um, maybe there's some really small presses that ask authors to help out. I don't know. Then, then you're getting into that shady area of um, those vanity presses where you're actually paying to get your book published. But on a, just on a kind of general level, a publisher will give you an advance, which is a sum of money given to you through your agent, who takes a very large commission. Huge commission. <laughs> um, and then I won't pay you any more money until that advance is earned back. That's why it's called an advance, not a gift. So you are making royalties off of every book that we sell. Um, and once that advance through those royalties are earned back, um, that's when you start earning more money through the royalties, uh, it, which can range anywhere from 10 to 25% per book. But then also, you're, the, the, whatever marketing money the publisher spends on your book is never deducted from your royalties or anything like that. That is, that, that's part of their overhead. Well, thank you very much, panelists, for being here this evening. Thank you. Let's give my round of applause. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.